humans, uh, humans are community-oriented people. Humans are community-oriented people. I don't need to speak much to make this case. It's just kind of obvious. Um, case number one, you're here. <laughs> okay, uh, we, we as humans, for the most part, uh, there might be a few people that live out in like Cave Junction or something that don't like humans, and, they don't, and, if, and if humans come up their driveway, they're probably gonna shoot them. But for the most part, by and large, humans are community-oriented people. We like people, we like to be around people, we like to be accepted by people, we like the attention of people, we like the praise of people, we like to praise people, we like to make much of people, we like to watch people on television, we like to watch people on these tiny little screens, we like to see what they're doing, what they ate for breakfast, what they ate for lunch. Uh, I mean, seriously, like social media, the ethos is people like people. We're people people, okay? Uh, I don't need to keep making this case. Why is it that way? Uh, answer is very simple. We were created in the image of a God who is a community within himself. We are a Trinitarian church. We believe in the Trinity, which means God is three persons in one, which means that he is within himself, kind of like a small group. He has relationship. He is the source of relationship. There has been relationship before there has been created things. Relationship existed before creation. It's not like God invented it when he made Adam and then decided to make Eve. Creation mimics the reality of community. This is true and always has been true. We're always looking, as humans, we're always looking to connect on a deeper level, right? And so some of you guys, maybe this is your first time here uh, at Philippi. In fact, we have a lot of guests this morning, so welcome. We're super glad that you're here. And, and, and I'm not sure exactly what, what you're here looking for. We hope you're here looking for more Jesus and more godly people to serve Jesus with. Um, but, you know, you never know. So, so, but as humans, we're always looking for more connecting points. So when you get your hair cut, right, and then this is a stranger who's cutting your hair, what are you doing in that moment? You're trying to think, is there something we can connect on? Do we have a commonality? Where are you from? Where were you raised? Do I have an aunt that lives there? You know, yeah, I've been to that place before, or whatever it is. We're always looking to connect, and we're always looking to connect with a mutuality. Now, this is where I want you to tune in and take notes. There's four, I believe there is four dimensions to a truly healthy human relationship. And these are important. These will serve us throughout this sermon, so you might even jot them down. Four dimensions to a truly healthy human relationship. In order for a human relationship to be full and robust and whole, it needs to possess all four of these dimensions. Here they are. Number one, commonality. Commonality. Commonality is one of the easier ones to find. Okay? Do you have something in common? Okay? Many of you, many of your relationships in your life are based on commonality. You like to go frisbee golf. You have a friend that likes to go frisbee golf, and that's your relationship. Uh, perhaps you're a family member with someone. What is your commonality there? You're of the same family. You have the same lineage. That's your commonality. So that's one dimension of a human relationship. This, another dimension, the second dimension, uh, is collaboration. Relationships are healthy not only when you have commonality, but when you have collaboration. Yes, these all start with C. You're welcome. Okay, uh, collaboration. That's mission. That means you're doing something together in your relationship. Okay, so you go from just, yeah, we have something in common to now we're actually on a mission together. It's an important piece. In fact, I would say it's one of the most important pieces of an authentic relationship. Number three is community. Community. Uh, if you want to know what I mean by community, just think of the word commune. 
You're sharing life with this person. You're doing things. You have overlap. You drive to work together. Uh, you, you, you live in the same house together. You, you have a weekly coffee meeting. You have dinner with one another. That's common at space. So in a, in a marriage relationship, right, that's at, in bed at the end of the night when you're talking. It's in the morning when you're sipping your coffee. It's while you're driving. It's you're, you're living under the same roof. You're drinking of the same water. You're eating the same meals. And then lastly, and this is super important, commitment. Commitment. For a relationship to be authentic and whole and robust, it needs to have some level of commitment. Now, some of these we're really good at. Some of these we're really terrible at. I would say the ones that we do pretty easily are commonality, right? Especially now with social media, we're really good at finding people that are just like us. We're really good with finding little groups or forums or web chat rooms where people are talking about things that we're interested in. We're pretty good at community. We, we, we know how to find other humans. What we're not so good at always is collaboration, having a mission, having a purpose. And what we're really not good at in our culture is commitment, right? That's the hard one. That's the tough one. But all four of these are important. Now, Hollywood and artists, they totally get that we like this stuff. And when they make movies and when they write books and they write literature, they're actually wanting to appeal at each four, they, they want to appeal to each, uh, all four of these realities of relationships. So, uh, and they typically develop throughout the story. Okay, so take for instance a movie like The Fellowship of the Ring. Okay, the movie starts and it starts to introduce the characters, right? And this is how any good movie or any, any story starts. You introduce the characters and then the characters share some sort of a commonality. Right? What's the commonality in the Fellowship of the Ring? Uh, they're all trying to figure out what's going on with this Mount Doom, Mordor, Ring thing. Right? It's a commonality. It's brought them together. Okay? This is something that's brought them together. And then they enter into a collaboration. Remember in the first movie, they decide we need to form the Fellowship of the Ring. Right? And now their relationship isn't just a commonality, it's a mission. We're doing something together. And then it begins to grow into a community. Now they're doing life together. They're, they're, they're fighting orcs together, right? They're, they're, they're going towards Mount Doom together. They're, they're building community. And at the end of the movie, what the author or the director hopes to, to develop is commitment. That by the end of the movie, there is a strong bond, right? You see Boromir giving his life for the, the hobbits, right? I know I sound like a nerd, but it's just good. He's giving his life, why? Because commitment has been birthed out of the collaboration and the commonality and the community of the fellowship of the ring, okay? Uh, as a kid, I just always used to nerd out on the movies where a collective of the best was brought together for a singular purpose, like the Avengers, right? The Avengers, like how many movies did it take them to set the stage for the Avengers? Like 15 movies or something, right? 15 standalone. Um, the idea of the Avengers is this deep longing for community and mission. All these guys are brought together by a commonality. The commonality is they're all superheroes, okay? The collaboration is some bad guy comes up and they all gotta fight him, right? Uh, but throughout the movies, you start to see deeper and deeper relationship formed. Okay, Sam, why are you talking about this? What does this have to do with Philippians? And is this a sermon about relationships? Yes, um, yes it is. Here's why this matters. In Philippians chapter one, verse one through 11, which we're gonna look at this morning, we get a glimpse into the nature and the, the definition of the relationship that the Apostle Paul had with the, the believers at the church at Philippi. 
And it's fascinating to see what brought these guys together. They're kind of an unlikely group. And they have an astoundingly deep and rich relationship. A relationship that you and I should look at and with longing eyes to go, man, I want a relationship like that with other Christians. And so what we're gonna do this morning as we look at these 11 verses, we're gonna ask the question, what created this fellowship? that Paul had, this commonality, this community with the church at Philippi, what was it based on? And then most importantly, how can we as a church obtain this type of bond, this type of a union? Those are the questions that we're going to ask. Now before we dig into the text, because we're starting a brand new series, by the way, give it up for Mike Moore that made this awesome graphic for us. I know he hates it when I do this, but the reason I do this, Mike, is because um, this is a perfect example of someone in the body using their gifts uh, for the glory of Christ. And Mike has this gift to do this, and so super awesome that we have this graphic. Anyways, let me give you a little background about the book of Philippians before we just dive in, just really quickly. Philippians, as you notice, is pretty short. It's four chapters. Uh, And most people, when they teach Philippians, they take typically about three, four, maybe five months. We're gonna do it in seven weeks. And the reason is because this is a letter. Okay, this is a letter. It's not uh, an encyclopedia. It's not a systematic theology. It is a letter that's rather short. You could sit down and read in about 15 minutes. And it was meant to be read out loud, and it was meant to be read in one sitting. Okay, that was the purpose. So what would happen when a letter, a circulatory letter like this would come into a congregation, um, someone, probably the, uh, the person, the, the overseer, elder, whatever, would stand up and they would read it out loud to the congregation. It would be mutually edifying to the church. So what happens sometimes, we take too long to work through a book and then we get lost in the weeds and we miss the main point. We miss the big picture. So what I'm hoping is by doing this in seven weeks, we'll kind of get the big picture here. Now, Philippi, uh, this is Philippi, so don't get confused. Philippi um, was a real place, okay? Philippians is a letter to a group of people in Philippi. It was a real place uh, in real time, in real history, and you can still go there today. In fact, I hope to be there next summer. Um, We're planning to go do some, um, some kind of mission stuff over in Albania, and I'm hoping to jot over to Philippi because I just feel like I have to. I mean, this is Philippi Church, right? You can go there and see it. Uh, it's in northern Greece. Uh, at the time of Paul planting this church, it was Macedonia, which is northern Greece, uh, the very northeastern tip, actually, of Greece. It's a real place. Uh, this was a Roman Outpost, a Roman city, it was the leading city in the area of Macedonia. Uh, One of the things that church planters did in Paul's day was they would go into the main city, the large urban center, and they would establish a church there first, and then it would act as sort of a hub um, for other church planting things. We see that in Antioch, we see that in Ephesus, and we see that here with uh, Philippi. Now, the story of how Philippi was planted is very interesting, and if you would like to know about it, um, our very first sermon here as a church was on Acts chapter 16, where Philippi was planted. And You can go back into our archives on our podcast or on our website or on our YouTube channel, and you can watch that sermon. But Acts chapter 16 develops the whole story of how this church came into being. And it's actually really interesting because it's one of uh, the, we have one of the most information about this church, probably more than most other churches, maybe second only to like Ephesus. We know a lot about the church at Philippi. There's a lot about it, uh, which is really exciting. And in Acts chapter 16, essentially Paul and his group Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke um, they are on their second missionary journey. 
They're trying to go into Asia Minor and the Holy Spirit will not allow them to go into Asia Minor. So they end up cresting the top, waiting to hear from the Lord. And then Paul has this vision, it's known as the Macedonian call. It's this vision of a man calling out to him, saying, uh, come and, and preach the gospel to us, essentially. And so uh, Paul does that. They weren't planning on going to this area, but that's where they go anyways. Uh, they go into Philippi and uh, there's no man. <laughs> there's just a group of women praying down by the river which was unconventional for the time, by the way. Uh, Phil, uh, Paul would typically go into a city, he would go to the Jewish synagogue, he would engage the Jews with the gospel, typically the men uh, at, at first, because this is a group of men, it was somewhat scandalous to go up to a group of women and start having dialogue with them. They get to Philippi, there's no synagogue. So what there is, is there's a few of God-fearing, um, some Jewish, probably many Gentile women down by the river praying. So they go down and they engage these women and they bring the gospel to them. Um, and in doing so, a woman named Lydia gets saved. And uh, she was a business dealer in purple, which means she sold high-end clothing. Uh, she, she was very well off, she had servants, she, had, um, she traveled for business. She gets saved, she gets converted, and then she sort of says, you're gonna come do church at my house. And Paul and the gang are like, uh, that's scandalous, we can't do that. She's like, I don't care you're coming to my house. She literally presses them, you're gonna come. So in Lydia's house is where the, the, the conception of the Philippian church began, super exciting. And then as the story, please go read this, by the way, this week, Acts chapter 16. Uh, the story develops, we see as young girl who is calling out, um, who's demon-possessed, um, she's causing a scene, and Paul the Apostle casts out this demon, and, and she becomes, we assume, part of this church. And then we have this story in Philippi of Paul and Silas, they get beat up and imprisoned, and they're sitting there in stocks, and they begin to sing praises to God, and then uh, the Spirit of God causes an earthquake, and it breaks open the chains, and, and they're, they're able to run out the door, and as they're about to run out the door, this, this Roman jailer sees them about to run, and he's about to take his own life, because he knows that will be the penalty for him losing his prisoners. And Paul says, hey, hold on. We're not going anywhere. Okay, and so Paul's on mission. He's an evangelist. He sees an opportunity here to model Christ and to give his life for this person. He says, hold on. We're still here. This Roman jailer is so overwhelmed by the gospel that he gives his life to Jesus and then his whole household gets saved. I mean, this is great stuff, right? This is super cool stuff. This is the foundation of the church at Philippi. Okay, and Paul is now writing a personal letter, probably something like 10 years later, um, probably from a, a Roman cell in Rome, 62 AD, he's writing a letter to this church who is, listen, they're so dear to his heart. He loves this church. He has nothing bad to say about them in the scripture. That's why we named ourselves Philippi. No. Uh, <laughs> he has nothing bad to say about them, right? He just has nothing but praise for them. Uh, just this sweet relationship. And what we're gonna do this morning is we're gonna press into what was so profound about this relationship Paul had with the church. Uh, what was so proud, we're gonna, and we're gonna use some of the background that we know from Acts chapter 16 um, and the, the totality of the book to figure out kind of what these things are. Okay, are you guys ready? Here's the outline, Philippi, Philippi, Philippians, chapter one, verse one through 11, breaks down like this. First, we have verses one through seven, the picture of missional community. The picture of missional community, and then verses eight through 11, we have the path to missional community. So we have the picture, and we have the path. In other words, we have what is it, and then how do we get it? That's just kind of the approach we're gonna take. So let's start with verses one through seven the picture of missional community. Philippians 1. Paul and Timothy, servants 
better translated, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you, peace from our God, our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot I could say about those few verses, but suffice it to say, I need you to see two things here. The first thing I need you to see is that Paul is speaking to a collective of people. Now we are Western, individualistic people, and we have oftentimes turned Christianity into a me thing, um, but you need to read this letter through the lens of a collaborate uh, a community. He's writing to a group. In fact, it's unfortunate the English language doesn't have a y'all in it because you can pretty much assume any time the word you is used here in the book of Philippians, it's not you. It's y'all. It's a community thing. So he's not speaking these things to individuals primarily, although they can translate to us as individuals. He's speaking to uh, a group. What that means is that these truths largely and primarily apply to a group, not to individuals. So this morning I'm preaching to the body of Philippi Church. I'm not preaching to individuals. Are you with me? Okay, I need you to see that. Uh, Verse three, Paul jumps in. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. In other words, every time I remember you, I'm thankful Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. So the two words that should stand out to you there is whenever Paul thinks about the church at Philippi, he has thankfulness and he has joy. These are positive attributes. He is so gushing about this church to them. He's so thankful for them. Do you have anybody in your, li- in your life like that? Just a side note. Where every time you think about them, you just go, oh, I'm so thankful for that person. That's my wife, man. Every time I think about my wife, I'm just like, I am so thankful for my wife. I don't know how she married me. I just, he's, this is what, every time I think about you guys, he says, I'm just so thankful. And I pray for you with not anxiety and not fear and not consternation and not, you know, I pray for you with joy, he says. Why? Because of your partnership and the gospel from the first day until now, note that, we'll come back. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work for you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. Okay, so here we're gonna see the picture of missional community. Now, why is Paul gushing over this church? Why is he so affectionate over this church? He certainly has other letters to other churches that are not quite so kind. He has the letter to the Corinthians, which I think gave Paul probably, he probably lost all his hair because of the Corinthian church, right? It's like I gave my mom gray hair. I mean, he, he, but, but for Philippi, he's, he's just gushing over them. What is it about this church is the question we need to answer. And the key is in verse five. So look closely at verse five. He says, I make prayer with joy because of what? Because of your, note it, partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, that word partnership, your Bible might translate it differently, but I would underline it because it's the key word to this passage of scripture. The word in the Greek is actually koinonia. Can you guys say koinonia? You've probably, if you've been around church for a while, you've probably heard that word before, koinonia groups or koinonia house or whatever. Um, It is the Greek word for community, for fellowship, for unity, for partnership. Um, And it's a beautiful word. 
It's, a, it's, a, it's the idea of humans coming together for a mutual purpose and having a mutual connection is the word that he's using. But what you need to understand here is it's not just about the connection. Listen, it's not just about the connection. It's about the thing that the connection is rooted in. It's about the thing that the, and what is the thing connected, or what is the connection rooted in? Look, look at it. Your partnership in the gospel. It's the partnership in the gospel that is the key to all of this. How do you know if a church is a real church? Why do people come there? Do they come there because they want to have friends? Do they come there because they just want to be accepted? Do, or do they come there because they have a mutual love for the gospel? The partnership we're gonna talk about this morning, the community, the fellowship that we're gonna talk about this morning, the participation that we're gonna talk about this morning is rooted in the gospel. That's why we are a gospel-centered church. It is so important. Now the question we need to ask is, what does Paul mean here by koinonia in the gospel? What does he mean by that? Because that's the source of the connection that he has with them. We need to dig into that. And here's where the four C's are going to come back in. Remember? Community, collaboration, uh, commonality, and commitment. I want you to see how all four of those C's exist with the gospel relationship that Paul has with this church. Okay? That's what I want you to see, and I want you to see it in this passage. So the gospel for Paul and the church at Philippi was their, number one, was their commonality. It was the thing that they had in common. It was the thing that they had in common. It was the thing actually that brought them together in the first place. You know, one of the things that I love about the real church at Philippi and one of the reasons that I think we reflect it well is that we are eclectic. We are an eclectic group. We have young, we have older. Uh, <laughs> older? Uh, I'm not say we have any old people here. We just have older, aging, okay, aging. Uh, we have uh, families, we have singles, we have children, lots of children. We have such a, a diversity, and what I love about the real church at Philippi is the diversity of a businesswoman who is, is a God-fearing Gentile hanging out with an ex-Pharisee who used to kill Christians and wouldn't be caught dead with a Gentile uh, prior, hanging out with a Roman jailer in his whole house, hanging out with, I mean, it's just this random group of people. And how do they hang out? How do they, one of the signs to me of a healthy church is diversity. And I don't mean the world version of diversity, okay? Uh, one of the signs of a healthy church is diversity because what brings us together is not our hobbies, it's not our skin color, it's not our background, it's not our political views, it's the gospel. That's what we have in common. And listen to me, guys. It's not just something that you have in common with each other. It's everything. Because it is, the gospel is the news of the ultimate reality that Jesus is coming to reclaim what he has purchased. The gospel is ultimate reality. So the fact that you have that in common with one another means that you have more in common with the people in this room than you do with your own mother, unless she's a Christian, which my mother is a Christian. So isn't that crazy? The commonality, that you will not find a deeper commonality than the commonality that you have right here within the walls of the church. It is huge. It's of utmost importance. And you will notice, if you're a believer, you will notice that at some point your relationships with this world just sort of can't go much deeper. Have you found that? I remember realizing that with my non-Christian friends, that I just, that there was something missing there. I'm a new creature. 
and they're still dead in their trespasses and sins and there's just not that connection. And then I found myself hungry. I wanna hang out with people that, that have a commonality with me. That commonality is the gospel. So this is what brought Paul together with this group. The second thing is collaboration. This is collaboration. Okay, they were on a mission together. They were on a mission together. Listen to me, mission is the binding agent of true community. And this is where I think most churches in, I shouldn't say most, that's too strong. Many churches in Western evangelicalism are missing it because we've called people to a social gathering, but we haven't called them to mission. And mission is truly what connects us. Mission is truly what brings us together. Mission is what you need to see here in the passage. Look at verse seven uh, a little bit uh, close, more closely here. Paul says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are, note the word, partakers. Now that has the same root word as koinonia. Uh, I was gonna tell you the Greek word but I can't even pronounce it so why would I even say it, right? Uh, the Greek word for partakers has the same root idea. It's participation. He's your partakers with me of grace. We'll come back to that. And then he lists three things that they're partnering in. Imprisonment, defense, in confirmation of the gospel. He says, Philippi, we are partners in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel and imprisonment. Now let's think about each of those things really quickly. Remember that Paul wrote this letter from prison. He wrote this letter from prison. What is so interesting though about Paul's imprisonment here is the way that the church at Philippi entered into imprisonment with him. Now most people don't realize this, but when you went into a Roman prison, you didn't get three square meals in a cot. If you didn't have outside provision, you died. So when Paul says, you partnered with me in imprisonment, he doesn't mean it metaphorically. He doesn't mean like in America where we say, praying for you, brother, I got you on my fridge, okay? He means literally, you are keeping me alive. If you stop supporting me, I die. And at the end of the book in Philippians, we don't have time, but you can look at it later in chapter four, he makes this abundantly clear. He says, you're the only church that has stood by me which is ironic considering that Corinth, which was one of the most rich cities in Greece, wasn't supporting him. Philippi, not so rich, they're supporting him. They were generous. So they partnered with him in his imprisonment. So their collaboration was expressed in their support for Paul in his imprisonment. There is a very practical partnership here to their togetherness. He also says that you partnered with me in the defense of the gospel. That word defense is apologia, apologia. Can you say apologia? It's a good word to know. Apologia means defense, and it doesn't just mean defense necessarily like arguing points. It means to, uh, as it's used in Peter, to give a defense uh, for the hope that's laid up within you. Okay, that means that we as Christians are called to be able to not defend the gospel with argument points primarily, but we are to able to articulate and clearly share and preach with our mouths the gospel. He's saying that you partnered with me in that. It partnered, not, not only by funding Paul's mission for him to be able to spread the gospel, but they, they themselves also communicated the gospel. This is what brought them together. They were on a mission together to speak and communicate the gospel. And then thirdly, to, he says, the confirmation of the gospel. Confirmation of the gospel means that your lives confirm the validity of the resurrection of Christ. Your lives are proof positive that this message is reality. That's why our behavior matters. 
as the church because our lives aren't the gospel, but our lives confirm the gospel. Are you with me? It's not enough to say, share the gospel if necessary, use words. No, share the gospel, it's necessary, use words, and then live in such a way that confirms the validity of the gospel. He's saying that your guys' life, the fruit that you're experiencing as a church family, as a church body, is so good that it's confirming that Christ really did resurrect and sent his spirit. It's a beautiful thing. So Paul has this relationship with these guys based in commonality, but also in collaboration. They're on mission together. Now, let me put a point on this really quick. Nothing binds together, people together as much as mission. I've talked to many people who are in the military, or were in the military, and one of the things that many of them tell me was I, that when they say, you know, I kind of miss the military, and they say, what, what do you miss about that? What do you miss about the military? I mean, did, didn't they just tell you what to do all the time and all this kind of stuff? They're like, yeah, but, but I had brothers, I had brothers in arms. I, I had people that, we had this common goal, this common mission, and we were all needed, and we were all part of it, and those relationships were forged in the trenches. The reality is if you have shallow relationships, it's because those relationships are missing either the gospel or the mission of the gospel. Is that clear enough? If you have shallow relationships in your life, it's because they're probably centered around shallow things, shopping, whatever, fly fishing. There's nothing wrong with those things, but real, authentic relationships are rooted in gospel and gospel mission. That's where it happens. And now there is a vacuum of mission in this world, and it's leading to almost all the problems we're seeing in our culture. I believe it. When I turn on the news and I see young people burning down buildings in Portland, you know what I say? Those young people need a mission. They've been sold a lie that the mission is to fight the Portland and burn down buildings to fight structural racism or whatever. And I say, no, they need to hear the gospel so they can get on the mission of the gospel. When I see ISIS, you know what I see? I see young men that have been uh, in a vacuum of mission and I see some older man that came along and gave them a mission. The problem is it's the wrong one. There is a vacuum of mission in our culture being filled by video games and pornography. It needs to be filled with the gospel. And I'm speaking to men there primarily. It needs to be filled with the gospel. And there is a vacuum of mission in the church in the West that is being filled with goosebumps and feel-good experiences. What the church needs is not more feeling good experiences. What the church needs is mission because people are dying and going to hell. And young men like me need mission, and older aging people need mission too. And if we're, just, if we're experiencing shallowness and it's our life, it's because of an absence of mission. It's so important. The church has been built around a consumer identity where church is a place to come and receive a product given by professionals on a stage with good lighting and good coffee and good seating. And what I look at is I say, that's killing the church. We need mission. We need to be handed a shovel and a Bible, not a chair and an espresso. I'm just gonna be real honest this morning. This church cannot be defined by how comfortable it is. This church has got to be a mission, on mission, we are an aircraft carrier, man. Like J.D. Greer says, we're sending out people for battle. They come back, they get refueled, we send them out again because there is kingdom work that needs to be done. Paul had gospel commonality with these guys, gospel collaboration with these guys. 
He also had gospel community with these guys. Now remember what I mean by community. Community is when you drink the same water, you live under the same roof, you eat the same food. Okay, what was it that, that, that Paul uh, and the Philippian church, what was the same cup that they drank from? Verse seven tells us. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are partakers or sharers or communi- communers with me of what? Grace. Grace. This was the commonality that they had together. I want you to picture this for me. The church at Philippi was a bowl full of God's grace continually being emptied. And because it was continually being emptied, God was continually filling it with grace. God, listen, God fills empty vessels. How do vessels become empty? They pour out grace. They deplete themselves. They minister. They give themselves away. We want the Holy Spirit to fill our church and we think we can do that by playing the right notes and having the right strategy, but the reality is that the Spirit of God fills the church that empties itself. Are we willing to do that? The comforter meets those who are comforting, those that need comfort. The Holy Spirit fills those that are, that are depleting themselves for the glory of Christ. Let's be honest this morning, man, I came here and I'm just depleted. I'm just totally depleted. I've been ministering and dealing with hard things for the last week that are above my pay grade, and I'm depleted. And in that depletion, God has been filling me and is filling me right now. You wanna be filled with the Spirit? Start pouring out. It's not about goosebumps. It's not about feelings. It's not about experiences. It's about the kingdom of God being advanced through you. You wanna be filled? Empty. Empty. Minister. Paul said that you guys... Entered with me into my imprisonment. You emptied yourself for me. You emptied literally your bank account for me, he says. And because of that, we are now sharing in the receiving of God's grace. It's not saving grace. You can't get more saved. (laughs) It's not saving grace. It's sanctifying grace. It's the grace that we experience when we have need and God gives us what we need in the moment. Paul has this bond with these people. I want you guys to be so close with each other, not because you spend five minutes talking before I get up and preach. I want you to be so close to each other because you're pouring out together and you're receiving together. You're being depleted together and you're being filled together. That's the kind of relationship Paul had with this church. It's beautiful. I want it. I want it. And lastly, he had gospel commitment with them. He had gospel commitment. Look at verse five. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day, that's literally the day on the banks where he ran into Lydia and all the gals. The first day, he says, until now, past, present, and here comes future, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, or y'all, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, Paul's thinking about the long game with these guys. He's not just thinking about where they have been. He's not just thinking about where they are. He's thinking about where they will be. There is a commitment to longevity. Where are we going? And how does it all work ultimately to the day of Jesus Christ and his return? There is commitment. Now, that's the picture. That's the picture of gospel missional community. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it beautiful? As believers, we we should long for that. 
And the question becomes, of course, what is the path to missional community? How do we move into that? What does that look like for us practically as a church to step into that? Well, the key, I think, comes in verse nine. Paul continues here. Start in verse eight, actually. He said, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. We'll come back to that. And it is my prayer. Now, this is what Paul's praying for them. My prayer that your love, past, present, the love that already exists, may future abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. So Paul's prayer for them is the key to this community that he's experiencing with them. And the key is love. I can't say the word love without giving you an explanation of it, and neither can Paul. Because if I do, you're gonna fill it, we're gonna fill it with what the world is telling us love is. If love is the key, we better know what love means, and we better know what we mean by love, right? And that's exactly what Paul does. So he says love is the key, but then he gives particulars of what he means by love. Do you see that? That your love may abound more and more, verse nine, with two things, knowledge and discernment. Okay, our culture is selling for us a version of love that is in the absence of truth. Paul here is saying the love that you are to have with one another is to be in the presence of truth. Culture says if love has truth in it, it's not loving. Love accepts all things, right? That's not gospel love. Gospel love does not accept all things. Gospel does, love does not accept something that hurts someone else. Gospel does, love does not accept the behavior that is hurting someone. Gospel love doesn't say, I'm going to allow this person to, to, to embrace homosexuality if they're a believer um, because I just want to love them. No, gospel love says, no, you need to fight this thing in the truth. Gospel love loves with the lights on. It loves in reality and it loves based off of the truth, the unchanging truth of scripture. I just told my wife the other day, uh, you know, as, as we've been just trying to sort out all this stuff in our culture right now, critical race theory and schools and LGBTQ stuff and political things, you guys are all trying to figure that out too, right? And, and then we're talking about it and I just go, you know, culture is so about fads. The LGBTQ thing is a fad. It's a fad, critical race theory is a fad. As Christians, we get to watch all that garbage go by and we get to go, we know what the truth is and the truth hasn't changed. We love the same way now that Paul loved in, 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 in 62 AD. Nothing has changed. We love people the same way. We call them to righteousness. We call them to repentance. We call them to grace. We call them to the gospel. We do it in truth. We do it in love, seasoned with salt. Nothing has changed. You can watch the news and you can let the, the news media con confuse the heck out of you, but then come and read your Bible and remember that nothing's changed. The truth is the truth. A man is a man and a woman is a woman and marriage is marriage and sin is sin and godliness is godliness and the church is the church and the gospel is the gospel and nothing's changed. Amen. We need to come back. It doesn't shift. It doesn't change. So Paul says, I need you guys to love each other, to continue to love each other, but to do it based on truth. And also to do it based on discernment, he says. Discerning love is not unmeasured, unplanned, sloppy, boundless love. It's discerning, measured love. You know the love of Christ? The love of Christ was very measured. He wasn't making it up as he went. He wasn't like, yeah, maybe I'll die on a cross. You know, I'm 30. <laughs> he had this planned since before creation, he knew exactly how much it was gonna cost to purchase his bride, right? It was planned. 
And the kind of love that we are to have for each other is a discerning love. The kind of love we are to have for culture is a discerning love, just like you need to be discerning when you decide whether to hand a $20 bill out the, the, the car to someone on the corner. You need to love that person in a discerning way, right? Not just say, well, I feel good about myself now because I gave money away. No, that hurts people. Love in a discerning way, right? And the gospel love is, is loving in a discerning way. That's the kind of love that he's calling these guys into. And then he gives us in verse 10 the byproduct of this love. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So we have two byproducts of this gospel love. The first one is clarity. Okay, let me try to make this really clear. Um, If you're lacking clarity in your life right now, if you're lacking clarity in your life, it could be that you need more missional community in your life. I'll tell you when I have the least clarity in my life, it's when I'm the most selfish. It's when I'm the most selfish. When I'm thinking about myself, I just lose all clarity. I turn into a monster. We call it the me monster in our house. Like whenever we go on a trip, the me monster comes out. Because when you're on a trip, it's all about you, right? Like we're going to Portland, whatever, we're going to the zoo. Like it's all about me. And we all get angry and we start fighting and we start getting selfish and we have to stop and pray and go, man, what's wrong with us? The reality is, is you have the most clarity as an individual and as a part of this body of Christ when you are the most servant-minded. You know what Paul calls himself in verse one of Philippians? Did you see it? He calls himself a slave, not an apostle, even though he is one. He says, I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. You want clarity? Start giving yourself away to the body. Start pressing into the community of the body. Start reaping the benefits of the wisdom of a collective body of Christ that has so much knowledge and experience. The people around you can help you in that clarity. So the byproduct is clarity, but it's also purity. It's also purity. And notice he says uh, in verse uh, 10, he says, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now, can I just remind you of something once again? That you right there, it's a y'all. So I know what I know what you're doing. You're doing what I want to do when I read that and you go apply it to yourself. Okay, so this is so I can become pure and holy. Well, yes, but this is written to a group. You gotta see that. We are to apply this passage to a group, to all of us. What that means is, is that your sanctification, that's a big spiritual word for your Christian growth, is stunted unless you are part of the body. And the body's growth is stunted unless you're part of it. We are to grow as a church together. Jesus, in the book of the Re- Revelation, he calls the churches single organisms. He talks to them as they are one body. We are one church. We need to grow these things in these things together. We need to grow in them together. When he says that I am confident that he who began a good work in you, this is a famous verse, will carry it out to completion, he's talking about the group. He's talking about the group, the corporate reality of this. Now, we're not here yet, but in a little bit, we're gonna take communion. And when we take communion, I want you to know that one of the things this communion represents is not just that you have been personally saved, but that you are now part of a corporate body of Christ. It's a reminder of the fellowship and the community that you have with the people. It is a commitment Some cultures, people drink from the same cup at a wedding vow, to do wedding vows. It is a commitment that you are now part of the same body. And that means when one's struggling, we struggle with them. That's what this means.
The purpose is that God is purifying a bride for himself. You notice that he keeps saying the day of Jesus Christ, the day of Jesus Christ. You know what that is? That's the return of Christ. When Jesus comes for his bride, and and his bride, Paul's desire is that the bride would be pure and ready for the bridegroom. That's his desire. And that should be our desire as well. Now, one last point. I need you to see the source of this love because some of you guys are probably feeling like, Sam, this all sounds really great, but man, I just don't know if I'm capable. I just don't know if I'm capable of loving people the way you're calling me to. I don't know if I'm capable of being like Philippi here. I don't know if I'm capable of, of, of giving myself away and pouring myself out. I mean, I just see people's garbage in their life and I'm like, I just don't know if I can jump into that. Or I just see hard things, I just don't know if I can jump into that. Maybe you're saying that. Well, if you are, I want you to see this. This is so important. I want you to see verse seven. Notice what Paul says. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers of me with grace. I'm reading the wrong verse. Hold on. Uh, Here it is, verse eight. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Paul. No, that's not what it says. Just making sure you're awake. That's not what it says. Guys, I just love you so much because I just have such a capacity to love. I'm just such a lover. I just have so much love to give. Uh, I don't. I am very unloving. Just ask my kids. Man, I just find myself being impatient so many times and I'm like, why can't I just be patient? I don't have much to give. But what Paul says here, it's subtle, but don't miss it. He says, I yearn for you with the affection, not of Paul, but of Christ. Whose affection is it? It's Christ's affection because it's his bride. This isn't my church. This isn't your church. It's his church. When you're loving a believer, you are not loving them out of your own love storehouses. Yours are very, very small. You're loving them out of the riches of the storehouses of the love of Christ eternal that has loved them since before creation. Let's read Ephesians. Isn't that beautiful? Love from the resource of Christ. You say, what does that look like, Sam? It looks like John chapter 15. Jesus gave us a picture of it. It looks like you are a branch connected to a vine. And I say this all the time. I'm gonna say it again. You know what a branch is? It's a tube. It's a passive tube that all of the nutrients of the tree and the root system passes through in order to create fruit. Now, God wants to use you in your practical resources. Some of you have practical resources. Some of you have practical skills. God wants to use you in that, but God, listen, this is so important. God wants to use you even more in the resources that you don't have. They're called spiritual gifts. You know why they're spiritual? Because you can't produce them. So somebody calls you and they're telling you something hard in your life, you're like, I don't know how to fix this. Good! Now the Spirit of God has an empty bowl to fill. Now he can come do something that's supernatural. If you're only ministering in the natural, then the spirit of God is not really going to be able to do much. There's a place for practicality. These guys, they paid Paul's bill. That's practical. But the way that Jesus loves these guys is supernatural. And unless we step into something that is completely over our head, God can't lift us up out of the water. I am asking you guys, as a church, to step into things that you don't know how to do. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. You can't produce love. You can't produce joy. You can't produce patience. I certainly can't. Kindness, goodness, the list goes on. The spiritual fruit, the spiritual gifts, they're things that you can't do. Christ is the producer of the fruit. It's his church. You're just a body part. My finger 
is not my brain. It's just a finger. It does what I tell it. You are just a body part. That's what the Bible says. I don't know what body part you are, but you're a body part. And, and you need to be connected to the mind, to the mind of Christ in order to function well for his purposes. Amen? Now, let me bring this to something practical. Um, what do we do? How can we take this and use this this week? Let me just give you three things that I'm asking you to consider. First of all, let me review. Okay, mission is the binding agent of human relationship. Mission is the binding agent of human relationship. You want to go deeper in relationship? Root that relationship in the gospel and get it on board with mission. You want a better marriage with your spouse? Root that relationship in the gospel and get it on mission for Jesus. Don't just think about being comfortable. That will kill your marriage. So mission is the binding agent of true relationship and true relationship must be rooted in the gospel and Christ's love is to be a true love and it is his resource, not yours, okay? So this is the review. Now let me give you some practical things to think about. This week, I would ask you to invite one person from this church to something. Maybe it's your house, maybe it's coffee, maybe it's dinner. I don't know, somebody from this church. Invite them to sit down with you and here's what I want you to do. I want you to listen to what Jesus is doing in their life missionally. And then I want you to join them. Maybe you don't have a mission. Maybe you don't know what I mean by mission. That's my second point. Sit down with somebody. We have a, a particular family in this church right now that's doing foster care. And it's hard. We need to help them. We have a particular family in this church that their marriage is struggling right now. We need to help them, okay? What ministry is already happening in this church and how can we jump into it? Philippi wanted to join Paul's ministry. Paul, what are you doing? Can we help? Can we pray? Can we support? So invite someone, sit down, say, what are you doing for Jesus in your life? And they might say, nothing. Then you can say, cool, let's do something together. I don't know what that looks like, but it needs to be rooted in the gospel. It needs to be rooted in the gospel. So commit to praying and supporting that person in their mission. Begin building the four C's. Remember the four C's, okay? Not the seven C's, that's a different thing. Four C's, okay? Say all the seven C's. I should have made seven, that would have been better. Okay, four C, remember the four C's. Commonality, community, collaboration, commitment. <laughs> Sorry, I got them, they're up there somewhere. Number two, clarify what the mission is. Because some of you guys are thinking, uh, what does mission mean? Does that mean that I help homeless people? Does that mean that I volunteer somewhere? Does that mean, what does that mean? Now, the answer to that is, Jesus told us, it's called the great co-mission. Co-community mission. It's meant to be done together. What is the great commission? Do you know it? When was the last time you looked at it? Go forth and make disciples of all nations, training them, right? So there's an element of teaching, there's an element of relationship, but the goal is discipleship. So whatever you do, if that is the gospel rescue mission, or if that is working with a nonprofit, great, but make sure that you're making disciples through that. One of the best places to make disciples is right here in the church, because they're already saved. Now you can start to develop them to look more like Jesus together. 
That's what the Great Commission is. We're here as a church, and this is what the world doesn't understand. They think the church should just give money away and then just shut up. That's what they want us to do. But we're not here to give money away and shut up. We're here to convert people to Jesus because everyone else will go to hell. Jesus is the exclusive way to heaven. The gospel is the good news that he has come into this world to save us through him and through him alone. And as a church, our mission is to make disciples. You know what that looks like? It looks like catching fish. That's what Jesus said. Pulling them out of one kingdom and pulling them into another kingdom. That's what we do. That's what we're called to do. That's what the church is called to do. We care for the well-being of this city, but we care primarily about making disciples. That's our mission. That's what we're going to press into. That's what we're going to call you guys. And I'm just going to tell you right now in terms of vision for this church, where this church is going. If you're new and you're visiting, it's a great week for you to be here. As far as where this church goes, our resources and our energy as leadership is not going into creating fun events. We will do those. It is going into creating spaces where discipleship can happen and spaces where we can train up the church to go out and make disciples. That's our goal. That's what we're gonna focus on. There's lots of fun things in the world you can go do. Church is where we go to the gym and we learn. We learn how to make disciples. And then lastly, just one more practical thing. Consider spending time each day praying for specific people in this church by name. You notice what Paul says? He says, I pray for you all the time. Paul's primary ministry was a prayer ministry. And there's a woman in this church that you guys probably don't know. Her name's Christina Swanson. She hasn't been able to come here because of COVID and, and things like that. And she's home. And she doesn't even have internet, so she can't even tune in. But she, she sends her tithe check every month. She writes me a sweet little note. I call her. We check in. And you know what she does for you guys every day? She prays for you. She prays for you. What an amazing ministry. She is invested in a way that she could never be even if she was here because she's praying. Prayer is an investment into the kingdom work of God. And as you pray for the work of God and as you pray for the people of God, your heart will expand. Paul learned this from Jesus, you know that? Remember what Jesus said? He said, take heart, for I've prayed for you. The ministry of prayer, it's huge. Why don't you guys stand with me? I'm gonna invite the team up. Grab your communion packet. By the way, I forgot to tell you, if you didn't get one, Cody, will you just hold that thing up at the back of the room and grab this, and we're gonna take this together, and then we're gonna end with some, some music. So Jesus, in the upper room with his disciples, um, they sit, and, and he says, we're going to, uh, I'm gonna teach you, I'm gonna give you this template, this thing that I want you to do often, and I want you to do it in remembrance of me. And as I said earlier, Part of the point was not just that we're forgiven by the blood and that, we're, that, that Jesus is the body and that he's the bread of our life, but part of it was that Jesus was reminding these disciples that they were now one family. You remember what Jesus did right before, right before communion? He washed their feet. He washed their feet. And then he said, I want you to do this to each other. So what communion is meant to remind us of in part is the oneness that we have as a body. And this is why we drink together. We drink together to remind us, and we eat together. We share a meal together because we are one body. So why don't you grab the bread? Father, just like you did in the wilderness when you provided manna for the Israelites, you have provided for your people once again eternally because you sent the eternal bread of life your son, Jesus Christ, that we might eat and be full. Lord, we confess this morning 
that we have eaten from the world's stores. We have drinking from the world's cisterns. We have looked to the world to satisfy us and we're still hungry. Because like you told the woman in Samaria, Lord, we, we need the well that springs up into eternal life. And so right now, Lord, we start as, and confess that we have eaten the wrong bread and now we wanna turn our affections and eat the true bread as a reminder, Jesus, of who you are and what you've done. So we do, together, as a family, we partake of this. And Jesus, we know that the wine was meant to remind us of your blood, but, but it was more than that, too. Jesus said that, you said that you were gonna come back and drink this cup again. So this morning, we, we choose to drink this and also remember that you're coming back and that we will have a wedding feast with the lamb and our resurrected bodies in a resurrected world all because of the cross. Lord, we believe in the burial, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the session and the return of Jesus Christ and we recognize that that truth, that that reality is what we live for now. It is good news and we drink to it and remind ourselves of it this morning in Jesus' name. Let's drink together.